Have you ever allowed your imagination to run wild about the world of work? To wonder what would happen if we tore up all the rules and started again? Welcome to Series 3 of What If, a podcast from the CIPD's work magazine that dares to ask the previously unthinkable. I'm Katie Jacobs from the CIPD, and in this episode, I'm crossing the picket line to ask, what would happen if we all went on strike? If you live in the UK, you might feel like we're practically already there. This winter, industrial unrest has been at its most intense since the 1970s. Railway workers, nurses, ambulance workers, postal workers, bus drivers, airport baggage handlers, university staff, teachers and even driving examiners have gone on strike in escalating disputes over pay, terms and conditions. Fueled by the experience of working through the pandemic, spiralling inflation and a cost of living crisis, many frontline workers are saying enough is enough. In response, the UK government has unveiled what some in the media have dubbed anti-strike legislation, a proposed law that allows bosses in health, education, fire, ambulance, rail and nuclear commissioning to sue unions and sack employees if minimum service levels are not met. Announcing the plans, the then Business Secretary Grant Shapps said he hoped the law would restore the balance between those seeking to strike and protecting the public from disproportionate disruption. Predictably, the plans, first set out by Liz Truss's short-lived government, infuriated union leaders who led a coordinated day of action in retaliation with synchronised strike action as well as rallies. TUC General Secretary Paul Novak called the right to strike a fundamental British liberty adding that the government's proposed curbs would tilt the balance of power even more in favour of bad bosses and make it harder for people to win better pay and conditions. It's a heated debate that shows no sign of letting up. But how did we get here? And what happens next? Industrial action is rife in certain sectors, but is that leading to union resurgence or even emergence in industries they have traditionally struggled in? Just how far could this all go? To answer these questions, I spoke to Melanie Sims, Professor of Work and Employment at the University of Glasgow's Adam Smith Business School. An expert in all things IR, her research focuses on the collective representation of workers and employers in industrial relations structures. I also spoke to self-confessed lifelong union man, Dr Ian Manbord, a quality and diversity organiser at Equity, the union for entertainment professionals. Before we start, I need to note that I spoke with Melanie and Ian before the government had confirmed it wanted to go ahead with the new legislation. So while we do discuss the possibility, the situation has moved on since then and continues to do so. First off, I wanted to understand the scale of the trade union movement in the UK right now, what levels of union membership look like, how that is changing and the variation between sectors. So I asked Melanie Sims for a quick overview. The numbers in union members has been declining quite consistently for about 40 years, pretty much since the beginning of the 1980s. And it's gone in fits and starts a little bit as the labour market has grown and shrunk in particular areas. And it's slowed down since the sort of late 1990s. So the pace of decline is is slower, but it's still broadly been at declining to a level about sort of 10 years ago, which has been roughly steady. It varies between sectors. So it, overall, it's around 25 to 30% of the UK workforce are in unions. But in the private sector, which is 
bigger than the public sector, that's very low. It's typically around 8 to 10 percent. In the public sector, there is much greater union density. So 60% is not unusual in somewhere like the NHS. Teaching sector is higher than that. So it varies strongly across sectors. Um, And of course, then the overall figure for the UK is strongly affected by how big those sectors are as a proportion of the UK workforce. And then, of course, you've got all the new companies that set themselves up since the norm of union representation. And many of those are in sectors that just don't have very strong unionisation. So if you think about new IT businesses, things like that, they're in sectors that don't have very much of a culture of trade unionism, partly because of when they sort of became up and coming sectors. You've then got in the private sector, a whole set of sectors which are really quite challenging to organise. So where there is probably a lot of enthusiasm for trade unions, but they're really difficult to organise. So retail and hospitality are two of the biggest ones where you've got a lot of young workers in very small workplaces, working all sorts of different hours, uh, different kind of shift patterns. And it's really hard to actually get to them and say, do you want to join a trade union? Whereas in the public sector, we've got a strong tradition of very large employers, so NHS, education, those kinds of sectors, which employ large numbers of the same kinds of workers, doctors, nurses, teachers, who have established patterns of deciding pay terms and conditions, sometimes through bargaining, sometimes through pay review bodies. And so you've got a lot of people with the same kinds of structures around their work and employment, and that's just easier for unions to keep organising them. However, Ian believes that despite gradual and persistent downward trends in union membership, recent events and a dramatic increase in visibility could well be turning the tide. He explains why. The historical trend has been downward from 1979 onwards and plateauing around about three or four years ago at 23% of the UK workforce, around about six and a half million workers. We have seen two episodes since then of increase. The first was during both successive lockdowns. And I think that was because of explicit evidence of what trade unions were doing to protect the interests of their members. The second one is now. Generally, when trade unions are seen to be visible, whether during the lockdown or now, in terms of industrial action and explicitly exerting protection of the interests of their members, we see membership increase. And increase in those areas where trade unions may struggle to recruit members outside of these difficult times, younger workers, workers in distribution, for example, as well. So those at the sharp end of the economy, those who really understand the issues around pay, that are kind of really at the fore of the range of industrial action at the moment. So the trend is is upward for now, at least, and that's a good thing. I have to be honest, the challenge for the trade union movement is always, can it retain those members that it recruits during these difficult times? That's the long-term challenge for the trade union movement. But it was static for a certain period of time, and now it's on the increase. So membership could be on the up, for now at least. And so too is adversarial activity you'd have to be living a very charmed or isolated existence not to have been impacted in some way by the industrial action taking place in the UK at the moment. Why is it so acute? I asked both experts for their take on the drivers behind the current wave of strikes. Melanie first. They had to keep the railways running. They had to keep the hospitals running. They had to keep the schools running. They worked really hard during the pandemic to work out what that looks like. They've 
had a long period of pay, at very best pay stagnation, but in some cases pay reduction because of constraints on pay deals, really since the financial crisis in 2010 and the associated austerity measures. And those things coming together and now on top of another economic crisis has really created, I think, in a lot of those sectors, a real frustration that, you know, we worked so hard during the pandemic to make this work, teaching, for example, or nursing or railways. And actually, we're really not getting the kind of reward that maybe we would expect to see or hope to see. And then we've got a cost of living crisis. And so actually our pay is reducing. So kind of not surprisingly in that context, people are really quite angry. And I think that anger is a big factor in what we're seeing now. Ian agrees and adds that when it comes to certain professions in particular, such as nursing, we need to be asking ourselves some pretty searching questions about how we got here. One of the things I think that's really important about the strike by the RCN is that it's a union that's over 100 years old. It always had a no strike policy in its rule book. So for decades and decades and decades, that group of professionals said, our commitment to patient well-being and healthcare overrides our well-being. Something's happened that's made that union remove the no-strike policy from its rule book and led to a situation where the overwhelming majority of members have decided to go out on strike. That's the thing that should concern us all. Not that workers are going out on strike, but the conditions that have forced them out to take industrial action. And I would say it's the same for teachers and it's the same for RMT workers. And those other workers who are coming out on strike, civil servants, border staff, the issues are what are the economic conditions that are forcing those workers out on strike? Powerful stuff. So with so much industrial action taking place, unions obviously believe that strike action is effective in achieving results. But thinking more broadly and perhaps bluntly, does industrial action actually work? I asked Melanie for her thoughts. Does industrial action work is a secondary question to does collective bargaining work. So if we take the term collective bargaining to mean both formal collective bargaining, but also the kind of collective regulation that we have through pay bodies and things like that. Does collective bargaining work? Absolutely. So we know that in countries that have strong arrangements of collective bargaining, we get much fairer income distribution. We actually also get much fairer wealth distribution because, of course, income and wealth are related through things like pensions and your ability to buy property and things like that. So we have much fairer systems, much fairer distribution of resources and wealth and income across society in countries that have strong collective bargaining. Does industrial action work? Industrial action is a necessary part of collective bargaining. So if you have collective bargaining but no right to strike, you actually remove the ultimate sanction on the employer you actually don't have a very strong bargaining position if you can't withdraw your labour and if you can't withdraw your labour collectively. Industrial action is a necessary requirement for collective bargaining. Otherwise, it's not really bargaining with any sort of evening up of power positions. Does a specific piece of industrial action work? It varies. Um, you know, employers can just dig in. They tend to have more resources. They can afford better lawyers. So in a really attritional situation, it's difficult. You have to be very canny as a union to really be able to deliver. But most of the time, employers know that they need their 
workers with them and that they're going to continue to exist next week and next year and that they're going to need workers to do that. If your workforce is that angry, then it actually makes more sense to sit down and talk to them and bargain and find out where the points of compromise are. It's worth noting here that despite the disruption caused by industrial action, the majority of the UK public continues to support at least some of the striking workers. A recent poll for The Observer found that 57% of British voters support the nurses striking for more pay, and 52% back the ambulance workers doing the same. Although that does drop to 38% for those supporting striking railway workers. There's no doubt that the public awareness and understanding of trade unions is up. But are unions still seen as relevant, particularly by younger workers? After all, according to data from the TUC, fewer than 1 in 20 union members are aged 16 to 24. I asked Melanie for her take on trade unions' potential age problem. One of the things we know about younger people is that they're actually blank slates. I think sometimes there's a misperception in wider discussion that they're anti-trade union. And actually, there's really not very much evidence of that at all. If you look at value surveys, if you look at all sorts of individualism, collectivism measures, those kinds of things, young people actually are pretty similar to their older counterparts. So there are some who are negative towards those things, but they're no more negative than their older counterparts. What really matters to whether or not they know about what a trade union is and whether they join it is whether there's a union in their workplace. So if they are in a workplace where there is a union and it's visible, it's something that's known, they are just as likely to join as anybody else. The reason there are fewer young people in trade unions is because young people are more likely to work in the sectors that don't have trade union representation as kind of standard, much more likely to work in retail, hospitality, those kinds of sectors, which are really hard to organise. So there's a structural thing going on with young workers, which is particularly challenging for unions. What would it take to overcome that challenge, to see higher union representation in the private sector and more broadly across the economy? such as in the gig or platform sector, for example. Based on his experience of working with many self-employed people in the entertainment sector through equity, Ian believes it can be done. I think generally in the trade union, we would say there's no part of the economy that isn't open to unionisation. But the the truth of the matter is the movement has struggled, particularly in the private sector, particularly in IT and banking, for example. And that's largely been issues of a kind of attempt to limit the scope of trade unions to actually get into those workplaces. What I would say, though, is certainly over the past four to five years, trade unions have overcome some major challenges. I mean, for example, in terms of what we call platform work, like um, Uber drivers, Deliveroo riders, I think historically there may have been an assumption that amongst those kinds of workers, it'd be very difficult to unionise because they're highly dispersed. They're not in a traditional workplace. They may be difficult to reach. But what we have seen are some very successful campaigns to unionise those kinds of workers. Very interesting for us at Equity because we are quite a unique union in that the majority of our members are self-employed workers working in what we call the original gig economy, not working every day in the industry, having two or three other jobs. So we know in equity that it can be done. I'd agree that there are some sectors which still prove difficult to unionise, but I would say that recent successes, particularly amongst platform workers, would demonstrate that nothing's impossible. Those recent successes Ian refers to include campaigns by the Independent Workers' Union of Great Britain, IWGB. It is taking food delivery platform Deliveroo to the Supreme Court in an ongoing dispute over workers' rights. 
Then there's that famous Uber case in which it was ruled that drivers are workers rather than self-employed. Melanie explains more. So if the employer isn't talking to the union in any kind of formal way, it's really difficult for unions to actually have any effect on the workplace. That's not to say you might not join in the hope that your union is going along that path to that more formal recognition. But you've got to be clear about what the limits that any union can offer you are at that point. Where I think the new unions like the IWGB have been very clever is they've said, well, actually, there's a step before that, which we have to demonstrate, which is that these are workers at all, because the employer is treating them as independent contractors. And you don't have a collective employment relationship if you're an individual contractor. It's just you and the person you're contracting to. And that's been very clever because that gives then usually access in almost all countries that gives access to the standard employment rights. And I think what the IWGB has taught us is there can be some interesting ways of defending workers' rights and promoting workers' rights, even where you've got relatively few of the workers actually in membership. And I think that's that's very clever. And that has shifted the debate, I think. If that debate continues to shift and results in more trade union activity across a wider range of sectors, some serious upskilling in industrial relations among management and HR professionals will be required. As Melanie, who teaches on HR management programmes, explains, it is a skill that has fallen somewhat off the radar. I came up through industrial relations. My master's degree onwards was all in industrial relations. Um, And over that time, so 25 years or so, we have definitely seen a sort of ebbing away of interest. It's there, but it's not up front and centre in the way it might have been in the mid-1970s. So what, in our experts' opinion, does a strong IR skill set look like? What specific competencies does it require from management and people professionals? Melanie first, then Ian. If you have a union which is strong and vocal in your workplace, it means that the good bit is you can always find out what your staff think and want. I think often a perception is that that slows things down. I'm not sure that's always true. I think that sometimes taking a decision slower or setting a course of action in a more considered way and with more input from staff actually can lead you to better decisions, which are more accepted by workers and therefore cause fewer problems down the line. You actually head off some of the problems that you might set up if you make a unilateral decision on something and then face some kind of resistance. I think it does require managers, not just HR managers, but managers in general, to allow their decisions to be open to scrutiny. And I think a lot of managers find that hard and it can feel very uncomfortable. But I think overall, it leads to way better outcomes. I mean, I know (laughs) from the research that I do that overall it it leads to way better outcomes. So there's a more sort of set piece approach. You know, we, we think we've decided that this is what we want to do as a managerial team, but we actually now have to go and discuss it with the unions. And, and they may tell us something we're not expecting. And that can be hard for a lot of people. Understanding what it takes to continue to motivate a workforce in a deeply difficult time. I think one of the abiding skills of a HR professional and a willingness to work with a trade union as well. I think trade unions are kind of painted as backward and difficult. I would disagree with that. Trade unions exist to keep people in work. Trade unions exist to keep an organisation going. It's not in our interests to undermine the organisation that our members 
are in or the employer that employs them because we need those members in the union. So I think it's an understanding of the role of trade unions, how they can benefit the work of HR professionals. But I think the key point that I would say on that point is there's a real need at this point in time, given what the economy looks like and how it looks like it's set to deteriorate over the next 18 months, just to think really broadly about what is it you're going to do in a situation where you know that people's living standards are going to decline. What else can you bring that will will keep people in the workforce rather than leaving? Of course, some of this becomes moot, or at best severely limited, if the government's proposed bill around curbing industrial action is passed. Here's Melanie, speaking before the government announced its intention to pass new legislation on the impact of government action and why it can sometimes lead to some unintended outcomes. What we've seen consistently over 40 years, really, of laws that have been intended to constrain the activity of unions is, first of all, the international organisations come behind and say, look, really, the right to collectively organise is a fundamental right. It would look bad for the UK to be too far down that path. In my academic view, the UK is very close to making it very difficult for unions to go on strike. And and that is a problem in the international context. But then also, I think unions have generally stepped up to some of the constraints. These disputes that we're looking at right now have taken place in hugely constrained legal context where they have huge barriers to overcome, to get the vote outs and then to vote in favour of industrial action. Unions have learned to a large extent how to do that and accepted to a large extent that there's a legitimacy in that. If a huge number of your members in a workplace vote for collective action, which is essentially the requirement now, then that gives the industrial action an extra degree of legitimacy that actually isn't a bad thing for the union. There's a maxim in my academic world, you know, if you give clever people a game to play, they'll learn to play it. Um, I think unions have actually really understood the benefits of having that that level of legitimacy and what that can then do to their negotiating power, how that can strengthen their negotiating position in the collective negotiations that they're then trying to influence. So what are the chances of more collaborative strike action? The only general strike in the UK took place almost 100 years ago, in 1926. It lasted nine days, with 1.5 million private sector workers withholding their labour. Coordinated collective action has been legally restricted in the years since. But if, as Melanie says, clever people find a way to play the game, could we see more collaborative action in the not-too-distant future? Ian believes so. All of the trade unions, either currently out on strike or proposing strike action for next year, have agreed that where they can, they will act in concert to place as much pressure as possible on the government. The fundamental principle of of trade unionism is is solidarity between groups of workers. So it's not surprising then when trade unions are out on strike that they seek to build solidarity between other groups of workers engaged in industrial action also. So although secondary action was outlawed a number of years ago, which is one group of workers coming out just because another group of workers have come out on strike. That is unlawful. But so long as trade unions are engaged in lawful industrial action, there is nothing to stop them choosing the dates between them when there will be strikes. So we can expect to see more of that coordinated action. And with more coordinated action, where legal, surely just around the corner, we return to the central premise of this episode. What if everyone went on strike? 
Could we ever see a situation like the Icelandic women's strike, for instance, where Iceland's women refuse to work, cook or look after children for a day in their highly successful fight for gender equality? I asked Melanie and Ian to consider the possibility of us all going on strike all at once. People use the term strike, for example, for the women's strike, but technically in the UK, that's not a strike. It has to be with your employer. You, you have to be in dispute with your employer. So you can't go on strike for political reasons because you object to nuclear investment or something like that or stop oil or something like that. In the UK, that term has a really, really specific meaning. Could you take collective action around those things. Absolutely. And people do. And uh, Stop Oil is a really good example of that, where you know people are taking action, very direct action, very collectively to try and create some sort of policy change around an issue that they think is really important. And they're prepared to be arrested in doing that. Is that a strike? No. <laughs> if they take a day off work to go and stand on a gantry on the M25, that's not technically and legally a strike. So yes, people can take collective action around all sorts of issues. And people tend to take collective action. The, the more distressed people are and the, the more they feel they don't have other societal mechanisms like voting or something to, to change things, we know that that's associated with people much more likely to take other forms of action. So it doesn't go away. It just morphs into something that is feasible and viable at the time. Given the cost of living and all sorts of other crises we're facing, I think it's very likely we'll see an uptick of dissatisfaction. Well, we've definitely seen an uptick of dissatisfaction, of which union strikes are one manifestation. I would be very surprised if we didn't see others, but they're probably unlikely to be what we call in the UK a strike. There have been groups of women in Mexico, for example, who have gone on a sex strike around certain issues. So I would say that strikes can be effective if we use the very broadest definition of what it is that you withdraw from. So there are many examples globally and historically where groups of individuals, other than workers in a specific economic setting, have said, that's enough, and will withdraw. So I think the answer to the question is, whilst there may be limitations on strikes as we conventionally see them, as it relates to workers, there's nothing stopping other groups of individuals in society coming together and engaging in collective action. So while various legal parameters mean an even more dramatic increase in formal strike action is unlikely, it doesn't stop groups of individuals coming together to try and create change. Perhaps the more pertinent question we need to be asking right now is this. What if people didn't feel the need to go on strike? What changes would we need to make as employers and more broadly as a society to stop it ever getting to that point? You have been listening to the What If podcast brought to you by the CIPD's Work magazine. To find out more about how the CIPD is dedicated to better work and working lives, visit cipd.co.uk. And don't forget to check out the rest of the What If series from your podcast provider or the peoplemanagement.co.uk website.